Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. We will be doing our light episode today as I continue to ramble my way through Genesis, but not really. Uh, today, actually, will it's kind of a supporting lecture, if you would. And of course, true to form, I ended up going off on a giant tangent in the middle of the lecture, but I, I think it'll be helpful. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop and open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we try to engage in sound biblical exegesis, context, and things like that in order to actually test the messages of the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose Bible study materials we need to be uh, reading in our small groups and things like that, to see if what they're saying is actually sound biblical Christian doctrine, or if it's a twisting of God's word that is taking our eyes off of Christ and focusing them somewhere else. Now, like I said, we'll be doing our light episode today, and if you're familiar with the Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis, you kind of get the idea of what goes on there, and uh, let's just say that apparently I'm not in a hurry. Today, we're going to be introduced to kind of a primer, if you would, on uh, biblical typology. We're going to start off with a discussion on the promised land, and it'll morph into kind of a bigger topic, a bigger conversation about biblical typology as a whole. And so that, you know, there's something that I was trying to kind of lay track on as we're working our way through Genesis and dealing with the story of Abraham. And so if you have your Bible, you might want to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll get started here and uh, get right to it. So without any further ado, here's a, a discussion, if you would, a primer on biblical types and shadows. Now, in today's sermon on Genesis 22... You will note that during the sermon, I made a point of talking about some bad messages that circulate regarding Genesis 22, as if somehow what you do is you look at the Bible and you look at the story of Abraham and you anticipate that just the same pattern that occurred in Abraham's life is supposed to happen in yours. So God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac then is allegorized to mean something that God has given you, and then you have to sacrifice it. And then after sacrificing it, God will give you more if you show that you're obedient to him. It's a miserable way of reading scripture. And the reason why is because it basically ignores what's going on in the text. 
and it presupposes that the Bible is about you in that sense. Now, that's not to say that those stories have something to tell us, but you don't want to just ignore the texts in a way that you're reading yourself into them. This text that we're looking at today, Genesis 12 and portions of it, kind of, you know, in fact, the whole story of Abraham, lends itself towards this bad kind of teaching. And you may have heard stories that are preaching that goes along the lines of just as Abraham, you know, he, God called him to leave where he was and go to the promised land. And then when you get to the promised land, you know, this is, this is the thing that God is calling you to do. So what is the thing that God is asking you to leave so that you can go to your promised land? You know, it, this is how these things work, okay? And this is a terrible way to read these texts. And there's reasons why it's a terrible way to read the text. is because, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. The Scriptures are really about Christ. And what we're looking at here is really a pivotal passage that has to do with the faith. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we took a look at the book of Galatians, and then we looked at the book of Romans, portions of the book of Romans, that showed how this story of Abraham is to be understood, because Abraham is the man of faith. Abraham is the man who believed God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. And he's the one that's pointed to as the definitive proof that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And this then begins to unpack something in Scripture, and that is is that Scripture, in a very real way, clearly tells us what the promised land is. And this is where we're going to do a little bit of work today. And before we get to that, I actually want to show you this interpretively. If you will flip with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read something to you. And in the book of Hebrews, we're going to get what's going on with this promised land stuff that we'll talk about here. Okay. I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews chapter 11. I'll take a look at verse 8. At least starting at verse 8. Here's what it says. By faith, notice faith, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, stop for a second. We're going to get to this. And we all know the story. Abram's called out of Haran. Okay, Ur of the Chaldeans, good neighborhood, by the way, back in those days. And he's called by God to take up his state, his tent, everything, and go to the land of promise where he's to live as a foreigner. Now, technically, does Abraham live in the promised land? The answer is, yes, he does. He's in the exact territory where God told him to go. Is he not? When he left or where? After he arrived. After he arrived. God says, take up, leave, go to the place I'm going to show you. And he arrives there. Now, after he arrives there, the first place he goes is Egypt. But he arrived there, and he did go back, right? Right? Are you familiar with these ideas? But so here's the question. Abraham, when he died, did he die in the geographical area that God was sending him to? Well, yeah. Yeah, he did. Was that the promised land? He just got done saying it was. <laughs> <laughs> No. You did. You just got done saying that. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Now, the answer to the question is kind of tricky, actually. Well, apparently. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> let's, take, let's keep reading in this text. Now, watch what it says. Just, just listen. Verse 9, Hebrews 11. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Next verse. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised. Uh-huh. In other words, in other words, it's not the promise line. Now, so here's the idea. And this is an important thing. Scripture teaches us in the Old Testament that promised land, wilderness wandering, certain things, those are types and shadows. Types and shadows point us to the reality. So technically, Abraham left and went and lived in the promised land. And you have to put air quotes around promised land because the promised land is not a piece of geographical territory in this temporal earth. Think about this for a second. If the promised land isn't a strip of geography on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, then what's all the fighting over? I was going to ask this. Same question, because that's always heard that they're living in the promised land, uh-huh. fighting over the promised land. Right. So, so this text says, okay, listen again, all these, Abraham and Sarah, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In other words, as we start to get into this next section of Scripture, you've got to get what's going on with promised land. Promised land is a piece of territory that typologically points us to the real thing. The real thing is not a strip of geography. The real promised land is eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. Then why does everybody call that strip of land? The promised land? Because they fail to understand God's word the way God's word expects you to understand it. Because if they had read this passage and really thought and meditated and understood what it was saying, that Abraham died not having received what was promised, then they would realize, wait a second, that means the promised land technically isn't the promised land. The promised land is pointing us typologically to the promised land. Now, remember our sermon this morning from Genesis 22. Is Isaac the sacrifice for our sins? No. But his sacrifice typologically points us to Christ's sacrifice. 
That's why the details match in so many like eerie, spooky, non-coincidental, that has, can't be an accident kind of way, right? Isaac isn't the sacrifice, but he was the sacrifice. But the Lord provided the sacrifice. You see, it kind of works this way. So you have to understand, the scriptures teach us how to interpret it. And if you are not a skilled Bible reader and pay attention to the cues given you in scripture on how to interpret things, you're going to get it wrong every time. I hate to say this, guys. It's kind of like, I'll use a terrible example. It's kind of like at Christmas time when you're, Smaller children, they get those toys where there's some assembly required. Not that I've ever, my kids ever got anything like that, like a big Barbie dream house or anything like that. But these things are monstrous to put together. And there's all these little details and stickers and things like that, right? And it will not turn out like the grand Barbie dream house if you don't follow the instructions. It will look like something your kids will cry over, right? But I did my best, honey, but why didn't you read the instructions, Daddy? Right? Yeah, I'm a man. I don't need instructions. They're in French anyways, you know. (laughs) Okay, so the idea is this, is that Scripture actually tells us how to read Scripture. It really does. And here, if you're paying attention to the details... They, these died in faith, not having received the promises. But he died in the promised land. How could he not have the promises? Well, the text then goes on to say it's because he wasn't thinking of a piece of property. He was looking forward to the heavenly kingdom, which is the real promise. In other words, you need to have this interpretive key from Hebrews in order to get what's going on in the segment of Scripture. So when we start talking this big theme of promised land, him leaving town, going to the land where God has promised him, all of that, if you would, is kind of like a dress rehearsal for the real thing. But the real thing is not here and now. This earth is passing away. The real thing is the heavenly kingdom. God bringing the new Jerusalem to earth. That's the real thing. That's the real promised land. And then when you see that and you start to get it, then as we go through this, you'll begin to see in this portion of Genesis and on into Exodus, it's like a big, grand, if you would, historical parade that hints at and shows us in so many different ways what's coming and it gives us a real way of kind of orienting ourselves in history and knowing where we fit and all this kind of stuff because here's the thing when we get to the exodus children of israel born in slavery in egypt under a god king pharaoh and then god through mighty acts of judgment sets them free brings them into the wilderness and they spend a lifetime one generation in the wilderness, and then Joshua, which is Jesus' name in Hebrew, brings them into the promised land. He took them into the promised land, but the promised land isn't the promised land. All of that is typology. It's It's the shadow pointing us to the reality. Now put yourself into the scene, and you can. You were born dead in trespasses and sins, in slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And God, through a powerful act of judgment, took the Passover lamb and slaughtered it on the eve of the Passover 
so that you can be set free from slavery. He then took you into the wilderness and baptized you. Think Red Sea here. And now you're going to spend a lifetime in the wilderness before he brings you into the true promised land. So it's a material things. Don't look at material things. Right. Here's the deal. Don't confuse the type and shadow with the reality. And this, the reason why there's all these people fighting over this little strip of land in the Middle East is because they think the, that is the reality. It's not. It was always intended to be the type and shadow that points us to the reality. Does that make sense? Did you want to go over there and explain that to me? No. I don't think they'll listen to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a question I have. Yeah. We pray. Yeah, because here's the deal. I, I have no reason whatsoever to politically or monetarily defend a piece of property on this earth because this earth is passing away. Right. Yeah. But everybody's fighting over this thing. But Yeah, for thousands of years. But see, the way I kind of look at it is is that it served its purpose. If you were to think of Scripture like the old Saturn V rockets, you remember the Saturn V rocket? Unfortunately, I actually remember this, but that's, you know, we're all old, okay? So, but I I remember one of the last moonshots watching it as as a small kid. Okay, so when the Saturn V takes off, there's this ginormous rocket sitting on the launch pad. And it goes up, and then pieces of it start dropping off. Right? You got the big, you know, the big bottom booster that drops off, and then as it gets higher, another piece of it breaks off. And so each of the different stages is designed to take it to a particular thing, uh, to a particular height. It serves its function. The Old Testament in that way was designed kind of like a Saturn V. It's served its function. We can still look at it and appreciate what it did, but it no longer is on the rocket. It's done its job. Does that make sense? So now we've got people who are taking a piece of the old Saturn V and fighting over it. Like it's going to take them anywhere. It's not. Am I bending your minds a little bit here? To us? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. No, no, the promised land is not here, not on this earth, because scripture says that when Christ return, heaven and earth are going to pass away and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the promised land. In other words, current heaven is not the promised land. Current heaven is actually a temporary place for us to reside after our death until Christ returns. So the Gaza Strip over there is something they're fighting over that is tangible to them, but yet it is pointless. Right. I mean, how many of you, okay, any of you like history, like American history? I like, I love Civil War history. One of my favorite places I've ever been is the Gettysburg Battlefield. I love that place. 
I enjoy it kind of walking out onto the battlefield, going into the devil's den, getting up on on a little round top and looking down and, and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? No one's fighting that battle anymore. It's done. All I can do is kind of imagine what has happened. It served its purpose within the history of humanity. We can go back and kind of sentimentally like relive it in our minds, but you can never recreate it. Same thing. The things that took place in Israel, the promised land, and you have to put it in quotes, all of that served its function in history in bringing Christ, the Messiah, to us. And the temple itself was type and shadow pointing us to Jesus, right? All of this stuff is type and shadow. It served its purpose, but the promised land that we're looking for, again, listen to the text, for people who speak thus, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So are a lot of Christians led astray by God held on Israel because that is the promised land. Uh-huh. Yes, they are. They're overly zealous for the nation of Israel. But trust me when I tell you, God's not done with the Jews yet. He's not. But you've got to remember this. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ. And the Jews of today who persist in unbelief in the Messiah, the one true Messiah, they're dead in trespasses and sins. And they will face the same judgment as anybody who is not born a son of Abraham on the last day for their impenitence and unbelief. There is not a secondary salvation scheme for somebody who's genetically related to Abraham. So we got to keep these categories in mind. So now that I've thoroughly like rained on your parade, yeah. <laughs> yes, Judy. Um, we didn't give, uh, you know, all this the types and shadows. And having uh, been an English major, one of the things you don't want to do is over major. Yes. Okay. And I'm not saying you are. Uh-huh. When did the theologians figure this out? Oh. What's this going on? Well, the reality of the situation is, is that the apostles figured this out, and the apostles are the one who taught us to read the Bible this way. Like, for instance, this t- right here, probably written by Barnabas, um, the Epistle of the Hebrews, probably written by Barnabas, and this is an apostolic letter. So already at t- this time, they're talking types and shadows. Book of Hebrew is, Book of Hebrews, in fact, is an entire apologetic, if you would, a defense written to people who were Jewish Christians to not go back to the types and shadows of the Mosaic Covenant, but to stay in the faith because Christ, the reality, has come. Okay, so the book of Hebrews itself is written as this, in this way to teach us the types and shadows. Jesus himself teaches us to understand types and shadows in this way. For instance, John 3.16. I know I've asked this question before, but let's see if anyone remembers. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Please tell me what two verses prior to that verse says. No, that's after. Before. Okay, we know John 3.15. Tell me John 3.13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Keep reading. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal 
So the text read, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone would believe in him. In other words, that snake, that bronze serpent in the wilderness, that's Jesus. Jesus? Yep. I know. Watch, watch, watch. I, I know, I know, but we'll all, let's, let's explain. Okay. Hang on. What's the, it's in numbers, right? What's our cross reference? Uh huh. It's in the book of Numbers. What's the cross reference to John 3, 13, and 14? Numbers 21, 18. 21, okay. Numbers 21. I'll show you this. Watch how the typology works. Numbers 21, verse 4. Okay, let me know when you're all there. Watch how the typology works. Now remember John, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Okay, so notice, Jesus is comparing himself to the bronze serpent. Right? Okay, now watch. Here's how this works. Verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we love this worthless food. Right? That's how they said it, I'm sure. Yeah. I just kind of imagine my children in the back of a car on a long journey. Yeah, it's kind of like that. I'm hungry. I've got to go potty, right? I'm bored. Are we there yet? All right. I can bring us into the car. There's no snacks and no TV. Yeah, something to that effect. Yeah. So then the Lord sent the Nechashim Seraphim. That's what it says in Hebrew. It's a little bit of a play on words, and these are fiery bronze serpents. And the wonderful thing about the Nechashim Seraphim is that being bit by one makes you feel like you've been set on fire. Okay, their venom is just quite horrible. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. So notice, sin and a curse. So we got sin and a curse. The curse is the fiery serpents. They bit the people so that many of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. By this time in the story, they're finally got, starting to get the idea of how repentance is, in, is working. So they go to Moses. We have sinned. We have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. But watch what happens. God does not remove the curse. He will not remove the curse. Here's what he says. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Make a nechashim, seraphim. Set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. In other words, God created a sacrament. This is a sacrament. A sacrament, by the way, is God's word attached to earthly matter. Yes, yeah, something physical. So we have a promise from God attached to human matter or earthly matter. That's what it is. So he created a sacrament. And 
The idea then is, is that the person who is bit by a snake, notice he's not going to save them from the curse, he's going to save them through it. The person bit by the snake then looks up and they will be healed and they will live. Now, most bronze serpents do not have this unique miraculous property associated with them, right? They don't. But this is a unique thing that God did here. Now, if Jesus is right that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now watch how the typology works. Where were we snake bit? Garden of Eden. Are we snake bit? We are. How are we to be saved from that snake bite? By looking to Christ on the cross. So just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and here's the thing, and this is where you sit there and go, but the serpent is evil. Ha 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 ha. Christ became a curse for us so that we could be the righteousness of God. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's Roseboro. Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis is a uh, talk about biblical typology, types and shadows, finding Christ in the Old Testament. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor has no clue how to actually preach Jesus from every passage of Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Fork. North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of my lecture today um, on biblical typology, types and shadows that point us to Christ in the Old Testament. That's right, because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. See, that's the thing. You got to understand what Jesus is doing on the cross. Here's all of our sin. And there's Jesus. All of our sin gets put on Jesus, and he is punished as if he is the singular wretched sinner of all humanity. It, well, it's, it's, it's kind of a, that's a little bit trite, but in, you know, he's being punished for our sins. So here's the thing. All lies, all idolatry. Every sin that every prostitute ever committed, every sin that you and I ever committed, every sin of every thief, everyone who's ever lived is placed on Christ, and he is punished as if he is the evildoer. Right, right. So the typology works because only a sinner is punished by God in such a way. He becomes the sinner for us. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. So typologically, the serpent thing now fits. Right? And who taught us to understand that that serpent was Jesus? Jesus. And here's the thing. Coming back to answer your question, Judy. Judy. 
The church fathers knew this. And when you read the writings of the early church fathers, this is how they, how they understood the scriptures. And they were experts at finding Jesus in every passage. Yeah. Well, this didn't seem to carry over like the seminaries, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Let's, let's, let's talk about what happened here. Part of the problem, part, okay, you've got to understand is, is that, you know, Christ died 2,000 years ago and the church has existed for 2,000 years. And we live in a culture. We live in the United States. We grew up in the latter part of the 20th century, and now we're into the 21st century. And culturally, we grew up with all kinds of interesting assumptions. And you've got to understand this. In the American context, we grew up in a primarily Puritan, um, legalistic culture that has as its fundamental assumptions many of the ideas that came to humanity via the Enlightenment. And you've got to understand this, is that, that these are things that we don't question because this is how it's just always been. Now, how many of you ladies do you rearrange the furniture in your home on a regular basis? Sometimes? Okay, so some of you don't. Lord bless you women who do not do this. Okay. 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 No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, this is an analogy. Okay, this is an analogy. But I always hate the conversation that goes like this when I'm, and it always happens when I'm away on a trip. The conversation will begin with, don't kill me. Oh, no. What'd you do? Well, when you come back, you may be shocked. No. <laughs> this is how the conversation goes. Okay, but here's the idea, is that when you walk into your house, the sofa's in one place, your favorite chair's in another place, your kitchen table's in another place, and you don't think about it. It's, they've just always been there. So think of our cultural assumptions like furniture in your house, okay? There's certain assumptions that you have, and that thing has always been here and always done that. But here's the thing. Get outside of all, our culture or go back in time, and some of the th- pieces of furniture that make up our cultural way of thinking, they either didn't exist or they were in a different spot, and they served a different function. And so here's the thing, is that what happened with the Enlightenment and modernity coming into the church, within Protestantism, there was a huge crisis of confidence in understanding Scripture typologically. And as a result of that, and part of that also had to do with the radical attacks against the authority of Scripture by the higher critics, this idea of typology made people skittish. And the reason why is because it, it smacks of allegory, which Rome really abused in the time of the medieval period leading up to the Reformation. Okay? Rome really abused the, an, their allegorical way of reading Scripture. But that is not to say that Scripture doesn't tell us to read Scripture this way. It's just that there's been a supreme lack of confidence in it. I'm one of these guys who says... Listen, if you want to know what I am, I'm a first century Catholic. And I have made a conscious effort, to some degree, been successful at it, of getting outside of our cultural context and putting myself back into the mind of early Christians. And the way you do that, by the way, read old books. Don't... Okay. Lutheran confessions. Read Augustine's. Uh, read Augustine's confessions. Read the. You know. Read Augustine. Read Irenaeus. Read Polycarp. Read these guys. 
get outside of our culture. Because remember, the church itself, Christianity, is Catholic. And I don't mean Roman. I mean Catholic with the small c. It's universal. Learn to think the way the early Christians did. Okay? It's always interesting to read how they... how. Older Christians read the scriptures. And you're going to find that some of the most profound and aggressive defenders of the Christian faith among the church fathers, they have very little in common with American Christians in the way they think. And that should worry us, not make us think that they're not Christians. And this is kind of a scary thing. Now, I, this didn't happen to me. This happened to a friend of mine. And he was talking with some people who attend one of the larger seeker-driven megachurches in the Chicago area. And he has, because he does ministry there, he actually you know, has interaction with some of these people. And he brought up, in the context of like a Bible study, the Apostles' Creed. And these people from this large megachurch had never heard of the Apostles' Creed before. And he says, you've never heard of the Apostles' Creed? So he rattles it off from memory. And one of them said, well, that's fascinating, but I don't think I believe that. No kidding. No kidding. See, right. Okay. That's kind of the problem. Americans, and you've got to get this about us. Okay. Americans are into what works. Who do we glorify? Who is held up in our culture as successful? That's an unfortunate thing. But yes, you're right. Okay. Yes. Okay. No, but she's right. Kim Kardashian. Okay, so the thing is, is that somebody who is successful at making money, successful at marketing themselves or making a name for themselves, they are stars. People listen to them. Okay, it doesn't matter if they have rocks in their brain. Okay, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if their morals are in the gutter. What matters is, is if they're successful, we need to listen to them, whether it's a CEO, a movie star, some reality TV show person. Or, it doesn't matter. These are the people we hold up. Celebrity is the thing, and it's based upon what works. And the same thing has crept into the church. Which churches are the most successful? It's the ones with the biggest numbers. Okay? In other words, we're all miserable failures. But the thing is, is that's imposing a cultural standard on the church. And see, that's a piece of furniture in our thinking that we have to say, wait a second, does that apply to God's church? A church is successful no matter how small. If Christ is proclaimed, sinners are brought to repentance, and their faith is in Christ, and the sacraments are administered according to the gospel. It doesn't matter if there's two, three, ten, a hundred, it doesn't matter. Because the thing is, is this, we're just one individual congregation in the body of Christ. And when we think our congregation is successful by the world standards rather than the biblical standards, we're imposing a cultural norm on Christianity that should have no bearing whatsoever in what we do. You see how our assumptions oftentimes inform wrongly what we believe regarding the church. Now, did you all hear Rob Bell on Oprah last week? I was just going to bring up Rob Bell. No, it's not. 
If you missed it, Rob Bell, he was on Oprah talking about his new book called The Zim Zum of Love. Rob Bell is a rock star. Well, I should say was a rock star in the, in the evangelical world. He was a megachurch pastor for many years, and he's, he's a postmodern liberal is what he is. And for years I've been critiquing him on my radio program and even on blogs and warning people about him because I knew exactly what he was the second I first read him because he, he's, he argues the exact same way the serpent does. Did God really say? Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's called The Zimzum of Love is the name of his book. He co-wrote it with his wife. He's on Oprah talking about it. And in his book, he talks about gay marriage. And so Oprah decided to discuss with him what he thought about the church embracing gay marriage. And he said on Oprah, the church is just about to embrace and celebrate same-sex marriage, to which I said over my dead body. But... um, but then he gave us this reason, you know, well, because the world is a better place if people are not lonely. So if you're not, the world would be a better place. And since the culture as a whole has embraced this, Christianity needs to get with the times if they want to remain relevant, is what he said. And if they continue to use, and this is how he phrased it, letters written 2,000 years ago as their, arg- as their best defense, then they will continue to become more irrelevant. Man, I'll tell you what, it's holy cow. So notice, I mean, in, in the way he phrases it, he attacks the authority of Scripture. It's just likening it to 2,000-year-old letters. Uh-uh, that's the Word of God. Okay, right? And here's the thing. This is, I'm I'm definitely off on a tangent. I'm going to just go with it. Okay. Okay. What is the reason why unbelievers are not at church? Is it because the church is irrelevant? The reason why people who are not believers are not at church is because they're dead in trespasses and sins and they're hostile towards God. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. So if the church goes, and this is the weird thing about the, the seeker-driven movement, no joke, here's what they do. Okay, if I really wanted to go seeker-driven on you all, I could. I, what I'd do is I'd start going knocking on doors with people in the community. How come you don't go to church? Well, that pastor's a cult leader. Um, <laughs> how come you don't go to church? Oh, because uh, the, the, the music is awful. Okay, the music is awful. Why don't you go to church? I don't understand what the pastor's saying. Those Bible sermons, they confuse me. and They're not relevant to my life. Not relevant to my life, right? So I just go ahead and ask all these people. So, Okay, so I asked a bunch of unbelievers why they don't go to church, and they gave me all the reasons they don't go to church. So if I want to make a church that's really going to grow, all i got to do is take the church and make it so that everything the non-believer wants church to do and say is what they get. Oh, and they'll come by the droves. Yeah. Well, so what we'll do is we're going to get rid of the altar. We're going to put a rock and roll laser light show. We've got to get some more parking. And you guys all need to start becoming parking lot volunteers. I know it's cold outside, but don't worry. We'll give you parkas. And a coffee bar. Exactly. Right. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to wear this anymore. I'm going to go work out, and I'm going to show all my tattoos. Right? Okay? And, and then back here. Oh, skinny jeans, too. <laughs> okay, that's painful to think. Okay, too much. This is way too much. 
Way too much. Okay. And what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of these tables. We're going to put couches back here in a hookah bar. Okay. Right? And then the messages. I'm not going to tell people they're sinners anymore. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them about their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And I'm going to tell, I mean, you give them principles that they can apply to their lives to make things better for them. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to start off with a really steamy series that we're going to do. We're going to call it Greatest Sex Ever. And we're going to send out, you know, flyers to everybody in Grand Forks and around Oslo and Alvarado and let them know that if they want things spiced up in the bedroom, I'll show them how to do it. Unfortunately, we would have to sit up Yeah, you know, you're, you know that what I'm saying, if we did this, we could pack this place. And then, then we'll teach them how to get out of credit card debt. And then we'll teach them how, how to have better behaved children. We might even have a dog training school. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And then Roger, Roger we can actually have him have a, have a conference. Or maybe even we can just give him the pulpit. And he can tell the farmers which seed to buy to get the highest yield and give them tips and strategies on how to make it so that they, when they sell their crop, they get it for the best price. This place would be hopping. And you know what? At the end of the day, after we buried them, they'd all be in hell. And so would we. That's right. And I would have a lot of explaining to do to Jesus on the last day. Yeah, because here's the deal. I don't care how offensive the truth is. I, I don't have the authority to change the message. I don't. Christ is my Lord. He's my King. I work for Him. He's given me a book, and He wants me to preach it to you. And he wants me to preach Him from every page of Scripture. And He wants me to tell you that you're a sinner, and He mostly wants me to tell you that He bled and died for all of your sins, and that He loves you so much that there was nothing that He held back he did everything, literally going to the very ends of the earth to suffer and bleed and die for you. And He calls you to repent and trust in Him. And it's all on Him and it's all a gift. He's there giving you His Word when I'm preaching. He's there giving you His body and blood when we receive the Lord's Supper. He wants me to remind you of how He washed you in the waters of your baptism and took away your sins. And how you have a right standing before Him all because of Him. That's right. Just believe. That's it. So notice in the service, every time you come to the service, you're going to hear what Christ has done for you. For you. For you. And you know what? I know that because you're hearing that, that you will not be able to leave here the same. That that love that Christ has given to you is going to flow over you and through you to everybody that you touch in your own life. Because it can't help but do that. But you know what? It'll never be sexy. It'll never be relevant to a dying world. But you're not dead. You've been raised to life. You're in Christ. That's why you're here. And you want to hear His Word because He has changed you. He has given you life. And you cling to Him. That's why you're here. It's not because I'm so great. And you know what I'm going to wear next Sunday and the Sunday after that. And you know why I wear this? To hide me. And you know why I wear black? So that you have a visual reminder that your pastor is a sinner. 
All you have to do is look at me and go, ugh, sinner. That's right. That's why I wear black. So, to change this, mm-hmm. what do we have to do to step up? Let's rephrase the question. I'll tell you why I don't like the way it's phrased. Because sometimes how you ask a question is going to lead to a particular question. Let me ask you this, okay? David, now that you know that Christ has set you free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil, that he's loved you and bled and died for you, that just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so Christ was lifted up and bled and died for your sins. Now that you know that, what do you want to do? Yeah. You see the difference in how I asked the question? Now that you know that Christ has bled and died for you, what do you want to do? Now that you've been set free, what do you want to do? Easier to make the decision. Any decision we have. Yeah. When we know we've been set free. Right. Because one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to drive you with the law. I won't do it. You already have been beaten up by the law. You need to hear the gospel. And it's the gospel that sets people free, not God's law. God's law was given to show us our need for sin, but Christ is the Savior, and it's through the gospel that we've been raised to life. It's a lot easier to share good news when it's really good. And the reality is, is it's so easy for us to forget how good the good news is. It's so good it can save even me. It's not a direction I intended to go today. <laughs> Sometimes I just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> now that I got this off my chest. Yeah. But coming back, coming back, we went on a little bit of a detour, and it had to do with the implications of something. And in, in, in we were talking about culture and how the culture has impacted us. This comes back to Judy's, Judy's question. How is it that the church has lost sight of this way of reading Scripture? The church has always understood this. It's just that in the seminaries, especially post-Seminex and the LCMS, this way of reading Scripture was looked at with suspicion. Because, I'll be blunt, what happened in, uh, in the LCMS is that the liberals were using typology as a means of hiding their unbelief in Scripture. Okay? Uh, yeah, let me give you an example. Okay? I won't name names, but there were several profs at the Missouri Synod Seminary in uh, St. Louis who were really into typology. The other thing that they were really into is higher criticism. And so what they did is they used typology as a smokescreen. And they say, listen, I don't have to believe that Moses really existed or that Adam and Eve really existed or anything like that. What matters is that typologically these are types and shadows that point us to Jesus. So they're like Aesop's fables. Yeah. So what happened is is that they were using typology as their shield so that they can hide their unbelief and say it doesn't matter if the stories really happened. The reality is this. This is history. And God miraculously paints in human history prophetically type and shadow pointing us to Jesus. Does that make sense? And so there's a group of us that are, now that Seminex has passed, we're trying to recapture this in a way that's faithful to the text without denying the authority of Scripture. I'm not the only guy doing this. Yes. Yes, that are kind of trying to recapture this. Why? Because the church has always read these, read the passages this way. And the reason why the church has always read the passages this way is because Scripture tells us to read the passages this way. Does that make sense? So when you think of it this way, 
when you start looking at it, I mean, when Scripture teaches us that the flood is a typology of baptism, then what's the ark? The ark is Jesus. And then you begin to see what's going on. That Jesus is all over the Old Testament. And you can preach him from every passage because he's hiding in plain sight. So they were teaching the typology, mm-hmm. but they were saying that the, the history isn't real. Right, it was just made up stories to teach about Correct, Jesus. correct, yeah. So as a result, literally since the early 70s, this you know, typology has been, in, at least in Lutheranism, has been like a, the third rail. You touch it and you die instantly. So I've touched it and I found that no one killed me. So, you know, although I do get, I do get nasty emails from time to time about it, but not, not, not lately. So does that help? Long answer. Long answer to a kind of, it was a complicated question, but it required that kind of an answer. Yeah. So. I know, I know. And see, the thing is, is that this is something, the more I see Jesus in the Old Testament, the stronger my faith is and the more convicted I am that this book that we are reading is not any human invention because nobody could have pulled this off. It is absolutely miraculous from beginning to end. Yeah. I mean, we're talking over... This, this is a book that took over millennia to produce. You know, 66 different books, 40-something different authors. And there's a unified theme throughout. And there's a reason why there's a unified theme. is because there is one common author for, for, for all of those, and that's the Holy Spirit. And what he did is so ridiculously miraculous that when you start to, when you start to unpack it, it doesn't cause you to lose faith. It causes your faith to deepen in such a way that you are humbled and say, Lord, I'm unclean. I'm seeing miracles in this book. And it's not something back then. It's blowing my mind right now. You see it? I mean, when you see that Jesus is the serpent, wait till we get to Samson. <laughs> wait till we get to Samson. Now, I'll, blow you, I'll give you a little preview, but it's going to be a long time before we get to it. Samson literally is a type and shadow of Christ. And you sit there, how is that possible? The guy is so immoral and screwed up. That's, he typologically points us to the scandal of Christ, how scandalous he is in it by taking sin on himself. You know, uh-huh. No kidding. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely amazing stuff. When you start to read Scripture through those lenses and you start looking for Jesus and you put it all together, you just, it, it, everything, all the lights start going on and you sit there and go, whoa, whoa. If all that were true, that it wasn't real history. I mean, Judaism teaches from novelists. From yeah. Yeah, if, if, if it isn't real history, then all of the Old Testament is Aesop's fables or, um, you know, the Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. I mean, it's just mythology. I mean, it, it, but the thing is, is that all of these claims, they're grounded in history. Without the history, Christianity is not true. You can't say that Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin and yet he's the Son of God. Because virgins don't give birth. Well, right, that's kind of the whole point. You know. All right. We'll catch it next week. We'll continue. So what'd you think? 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.